0: You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody.
1: This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is that I'm not going to be teaching basic meditation here. Um, I put some flyers out there. We are going to start a basic meditation class on, on Thursday nights, In starting, uh, I think, October 12th is the first class. So if you uh, want some basic instruction or you know people that you want to recommend meditation instruction to but you think that this is not the place for them to jump in, um, <clears throat> I'll take a look at the flyer out there as well. Um, we've been talking about, um, we've been slowly going through the Manual of Insight, which is the Mahasi Sayadaw text on how to do Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi is a Pali word which means momentary concentration insight practice. Then what that uh, Karnaka Samadhi is, where you momentarily focus on the object of meditation and is considered the insight direct path. Uh, as opposed to the concentration first and then insight path or the tranquility path, the samadhi path. Um, One of the reasons that the karnaka samadhi or the momentary concentration insight practice came about was because it was a practice designed really for householders. And one of the reasons that I like to teach, it is because I mostly teach householders, I would say I must always teach householders so that the uh, this technique can be used by householders to develop a deep practice um, if you had to spend months or years developing jhana uh, as a concentration practice first and then going into insight practice uh, you may not be willing to do that whereas if you develop this practice you can begin to have the fruits of insight uh, practice pretty much from the beginning of the practice that you do Uh, people tend to come uh, because of uh, their suffering and so the insight practice tends to be relieving of that when you begin to see how you operate in the world, how you create the sense of self and world and then you can begin to move toward relieving the distortions that create suffering Um, that tends to be better than attempting to develop concentration and just blissing out during the period of meditation that you're in. Um, We're talking about feeling states uh, or vedna. Uh, Last time we talked about vedna or feeling tones as the quality of the sensing experience. In In Vipassana meditation, what we're attempting to do is pull apart the basic elements of sensing the experience so that we can see how we combine the sensing experiences into the creation of self and world. So we have the six senses, uh, uh, seeing, hearing, uh, tasting, smelling, feeling, uh, and then thinking. We explored thinking as a sensing experience, so, uh, on this side, uh, I'd like to say this side of the divide, the unfixated and the fixated, or the sensing experience and the thing that we make the sensing experience into. And a short uh, way of describing the sensing experience of the mind is that it sequences individual sensing experiences so that you can track the flow of individual sensing experiences and it's also the thing that you choose to focus on so that you'll, you may notice that the mind focuses on one thing at a time and uh, that direction, that choice of where you're focusing is the sensing aspect of mind Uh, In the West, we're not conditioned really to consider that because we really have only the five basic senses. So if there's an object that can be sensed and we have the capacity to sense it, then a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. And part of the quality of the sensing experience is whether the experience itself, the sensing experience itself is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In the Mahasi text, he uh, describes uh, the sensing experience as almost always pleasant or unpleasant, and that the the, the neutral experience has as hard to detect or subtle and hard to detect. Um, and this is really. <clears throat> Often in the text, he's describing the difference between monastic practitioners and and householders, and uh, suggesting that a householder practice is less uh, deep, less developed. And so, uh, this uh, characterization of uh, pleasant and unpleasant being the main ways that we sense experience, and the neutral or the not pleasant or not unpleasant, or the pleasant or not unpleasant experiences. Is what draws our attention, and we don't have the the capacity to notice the more subtle experience. Hmm? Um,
2: So, present and unpleasant refers to a conditioned response to sensation, right? So, if if the defilements aren't present, is there still pleasant and unpleasant?
1: So the defilements attach when you fixate something and make it into something and there's a conditioning to that. There's also a conditioning that comes to the sensing experience itself. Um, Maybe you... you, Sorry to be geeky in these ways that I am, but um, you may remember Kandel's work with the giant muscle... um, clam um, he uh, he wanted to see how cells communicate and so he dissected uh, lots of clams and um, this one particular giant clam the cell structure is so primitive that you can almost see the individual cells with the naked eye because they're so large and um, and what he he discovered there was that at a cellular level there can be conditioning that never Uh, comes into consciousness that we fixate into a a, a narrative. It's just literally a responsiveness in the tissue that comes from conditioning. So, for instance, if you burn your hand or you touch something that's hot, the body will already have removed itself by the time you have an awareness that there's any heat there at all. You will already have moved the hand, and it, it comes because... The signals around protecting the physical structure of the body don't require a narrative to operate. So the conditioning at that level is is much pre-consciousness, let's say, from that. We don't know what the sensing experience is like until it becomes conscious because of the nature of the human experience. And if you recall, um, that group of French neuroscientists that the body-mind processes 11 million bits per second of information, but consciousness knows only 16 bits. And that the processing speed of consciousness is slow, so it's about 150,000 microseconds or about a half a second. In order to create a conscious experience of what's happening, it takes the body-mind about a half a second to generate the thought. So that technically speaking, we don't exist in the present moment. We exist in the experience of the present moment that, that happened a half a second ago. So that when we're talking about the kind of tracking that we're talking about here, knowing what the sensing experience is and knowing what it felt like to sense that we're talking about something that happened in the past and that's something that's available to know in consciousness which is conditioned the conditioning around the sensing experience though it tends to be very deep and very difficult to change so that if you have an experience and it comes up as unpleasant it pretty much stays unpleasant in the sensing of it when you make it into something which is mind not mind of the sensing but mind as the making it into something then the, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspect or, or the wanting, not wanting thinking aspect of that is quite changeable and you may notice that initially you don't like something and then it becomes neutral or even pleasant um, I'm sure later when we hear R.E.M. We uh, sort of the last 20 minutes of the sit is always filled with one of the people who lives around here playing the same REM song on repeat week after week. It's an amazing phenomenon. What we're talking about in terms of Vedna, though, is the quality of the experience of sensing it. So, um, if you look in the body, I find in the body a lot of the sensations of the physical nature of the body are unpleasant. But in terms of seeing, seeing is almost, for me, always neutral except for when the light is too bright. In hearing... um, It's a a kind of a mix. A lot of hearing is neutral. Some hearing is unpleasant. It's unusual to hear something and the sensing aspect of it be pleasant, although often the thing that I make it into is quite pleasant. Um, Do you know what what I mean? I'm just going to take this moment to trash Studimel because it's one of my missions in life. But... um, Ad nauseum, they're doing Beethoven's Ninth, right, uh, this season, and um, when, uh, if you know the fourth movement, when the Ode to Joy breaks out in the, and you know you have three hundred choral singers and a full orchestra and the soloists all, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs, um, it's awesome, but it in the hearing of it, the actual sensing of the hearing of it, it could be unpleasant because it's so loud but then the emotional response to the what it becomes when when it's formed into music is usually very very pleasant very moving and then some of those sensations which are emotional in nature can also be quite pleasant, is that making sense? So we're trying to tease these things out the uh, <coughs> The capacity to sense and the activation of the individual sense gates and what the quality of the sensing is which is the vedna and noticing whether they're pleasant, unpleasant or neutral and then I wanted to um, describe um, we talked about um, the determination of just the ordinary experience of doing it and we are always considering Um, what's considered ultimate versus conceptual reality. So ultimate reality is the sensing experience and conceptual reality is the thing that we make it into. One of the things... I, I like this gesture of rocking back and forth. You settle into the sensing experience where nothing is fixated and you're just knowing the sensing. And then you come out of that and evaluate what it is that you're sensing. And then you drop back into the just pure sensing experience. So you're dropping into the ultimate reality of pure sensing and then you're touching into the thing that you make it into. And in this back and forth, you reveal what the mind state is and you also reveal it to yourself whether the thing that you make it into is an accurate representation of what you're sensing. It's. Um... I like to talk about it in this way because... One of the things that I think it's important to pay attention to is your spiritual maturity, your spiritual maturation and the process that unfolds. How, what is it? What are the milestones of spiritual maturity? And if we look at the basic uh, process of it, the first one is to recognize that you have a mind state and that other people have a mind state and it distorts or affects the way that We perceive the sensing experience. Um, When we don't have that understanding, then we think that we don't have a mind state and that the way that we experience it is the way that everybody experiences it. And so what we really want to begin to do is pay attention to this is how I'm experiencing it, how are you experiencing it, and so that we can actually be communicating. If you are thinking that you... Uh, your experience is the universal experience, then when people disagree with you, you think that they're wrong because they're disagreeing with your worldview, your, your creation of the world. And if you really settle into this understanding that this is how I'm experiencing it through a mind state that's been conditioned and that everybody else is experiencing what's happening through their own mind states which are conditioned and that all of our conditioning is different then it becomes very easy to understand that you perceive it in one way and they perceive it in another and the the main object of being in relationship with someone else is to be able to communicate what your experience is rather than assuming that they have the same one as you and their behavior is based on the same understanding as you have. Does that make sense? So you, you depersonalize their actions as if they're all based on this universal understanding which isn't, doesn't actually exist. Have you ever had an argument with somebody where saying you did this and they're saying no I didn't? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> what is their perception of? Uh, this is what I think is only going on. Day. What?
0: I said only every day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is what I think is going on. What do you think is going on? It's a good place <laughs> to begin. <laughs> Also, if you put your cards down first, people are more willing to show you your cards than if you say, what do you think is going on? <laughs> <laughs> I've also heard a version of that where it's, here's the story I'm
0: telling in my head. What's the story you're telling exactly. in your Exactly. <laughs> it, it, like, never gets there, though. It's always, like, this is how it is. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, Exactly.
1: <laughs> That is why you want to start meditating. (laughs) So, um, as the discussion in the Mahasi manual uh, matures around uh, feeling tones, they have a discussion of worldly pleasure, uh, the happiness associated with external things that one loves or is fond of, one's spouse, child, clothing, property, estate animals, gold, silver and so on or with internal things that one loves one's eyesight, comfort, talent, skills and so forth is called worldly pleasure the Pali term literally means happiness that feeds on sensual pleasure that is happiness associated with sensual objects when one enjoys the beauty or sweet voice of one's spouse for example that visual object or sound arouses happiness Or one may feel happy when thinking about a good time one has had in the past. When feeling a pleasant feeling associated with a sensual object, one understands I feel pleasant feelings associated with sensual objects. Unworldly pleasure. A meditator whose awareness is constant and uninterrupted uninterrupted, and whose insight knowledge is mature experiences the, the arising and passing away of the sixth sense objects arising at the six sense doors and so understands their impermanent nature. Equating or relating this present object to other present objects or objects of the past, he or she then comes to understand that they are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and changing all the time. This realization arouses a type of happiness called unworldly pleasure, happiness not associated with sensual objects. This is also called happiness associated with renunciation. When, by knowing the impermanent change, fading away, and cessation of forms, one sees as it actually is with proper wisdom that forms both formerly and now are all impermanent suffering and subject to change, joy arises. Such joy uh, is called uh, joy based on renunciation. So last week I, I was talking about uh, understanding the biases of your teachers uh, in, in a sense that uh, in this manual um, I notice a bias uh, in favor of monastic practice and, um, and uh, a, a general sense that householder practice has shortcomings built into it. In that his description of householder practice is one where they notice pleasant experience and unpleasant experience, but a neutral experience, or not a pleasant or not uh, uh, unpleasant experience, is hard to detect. I, uh, my main teacher for the last twenty years has been Shinzen Young, and he has always suggested that n- most experience was neutral. And in some sense, what he's talking about here is. Uh, the unworldly side of things rather than on the worldly side of things, um, that uh, his un- his uh, um, expectation of householders is that they can practice deeply and that the unworldly aspects of practice would be available to them, and so that his commentary is more around the unworldly side of things is that are you able to understand the distinction um, <clears throat> we can see conventional reality and think that that's the thing that's there and the thing that matters, but we can also see uh, uh, in uh, a deep way that all experience is conditioned, all experiences are subject to the three marks of existence, uh, that there isn't a self that needs to be defended, that everything arises and passes, and that the nature of the human existence is one of unsatisfactoriness. And that to see that, um, and to find pleasure in that, is this uh, happiness uh, associated with renunciation, and that it is available to householders. Is that, did I make myself clear about that? So pay attention to the bias of a teacher, because you, you may find that there, uh, that you're sitting with somebody who's teaching you who does not think that householders really have the capacity to get into the unworldly side of practice and that are going to be stuck in the worldly side and so that the the, the way that they uh, instruct is is going to be quite different unworldly uh, worldly displeasure when we do not get the desirable objects we want we feel disappointment and frustrated and think that we are unfortunate Sometimes we may suffer distress when we think of our lack of sensual pleasures in the present and in the past. Such distress, sadness, frustration, worry, and so on is called worldly displeasure. When feeling worldly pain, painful feeling, he understands, I feel worldly painful feelings. Unworldly displeasure. When a meditator has reached the insight knowledge is beginning with knowledge of arising and passing away and has spent quite a long time meditating, he or she may long to become a noble person endowed with path knowledge and fruition. So uh, path knowledge and fruition is, uh, say, uh, understanding that you've had stream entry or you've had cessation. Um, But the meditator may feel disheartened having not achieved what he or she wanted to achieve in thinking that he or she will be unable to attain past knowledge or fruition in this life. This distress is called unworldly displeasure. So how many of us who have been practicing have experienced <coughs> unworldly displeasure? <laughs> I'm laughing because we had this conversation this afternoon. Um, when feeling an unworldly painful feeling, he understands I am... Uh, uh, I am... I feel an unworldly, painful feeling. Um, what time is it? All right. uh, There's a there's a story if you get this book uh, that goes on for two pages about a monk who uh, successfully taught thirty thousand people to become enlightened arahats, but he himself was unable to achieve even stream entry Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, one of his uh, one of the students that he trained who became uh, fully as an arhat flew to him and manifested (laughs) his image in front of him and explained what he needed to do which was in fact pay attention to your own practice and, Mm. and do the things that you need to um Worldly neither, pleasant, dis, uh, worldly, neither displeasure or pleasure. Ordinary, spiritually blind people often feel neither happy nor unhappy when they encounter a sensual object that is neither pleasant or unpleasant. However, they are not aware of this, cannot, uh, cannot give up the object and relate to it with, with uh, attachment. This kind of feeling is called worldly, neither displeasure or pleasure or home equanimity, or equanimity associated with delusion. When feeling a worldly, neither painful or pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel a worldly, neither uh, painful or pleasant feeling. Unworldly, neither displeasure or pleasure. When one uh, insight meditation practice is purified from the corruptions of insight, any of the six sense objects that arise will become very distinct, and neither unpleasant nor pleasant feelings becomes very distinct in the face of penetrating insight. At the stage of insight knowledge of equanimity toward formation, it becomes even more distinct. This neither unpleasant nor pleasant feeling is called unworthy, uh, unworldly Neither a displeasant displeasure or pleasure it is also called neutral feelings associated with renunciation when feeling an unworldly neither painful or pleasant feeling he understands I am I feel an unworldly neither painful nor pleasant experience. Um, is this making sense? <clears throat> When you another way to uh, to talk about this would be content versus function. Um, are you noticing just the content of the narrative, just the content of the thing that you've made, and are you reacting to it as whether it's pleasant or it's pleasing to you or not pleasing to you, or you, can you see the 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 function of it? Um, What is the body-mind doing in the moment of that sensing experience? Does that make any clarification? We often get caught up in the content of the sensing experience and we don't backtrack into how we sensed it, how we came to that conclusion. But the conditioned responses were that that form that. If you uh, in this process of Vipassana where we're pulling everything apart, we want to see these individual threads, and there aren't that many to see. there are six threads that we need to pay attention to. The quality of the sensing experience around that has it can affect the way that we create self and world from it. If the experience of sensing something is unpleasant, we can develop a dislike to it that is different than what, what the thing is. Um, I used the last week the, the metaphor of, um, or maybe I didn't, of uh, physical exercise, where I find almost all experiences of physical exercise to be deeply unpleasant. <laughs> this is not true, apparently, of everyone. <laughs> I still do it because the body is more workable if I exercise it and stretch it than if I don't. But I, it doesn't uh, for instance um, I um, I do spend probably an hour and a half a week stretching my hamstrings um, because if I don't do that I have terrible lower back pain. If I do my stretches, I don't have any back pain. So, the entire hour and a half, though, of stretching is a consistently unpleasant experience, <laughs> <laughs> which is much less unpleasant in comparison mm-hmm. to the back pain, right? Are you make is this making mm-hmm. sense? Um, I do it, and I have a sense of satisfaction having done it, and also uh, I'm. I'm overall in less physical pain than I would be if I didn't do it. But it doesn't mean that the sensing of that experience is is, is anything but unpleasant. Is that making sense? But if you didn't have mindfulness of this, if you didn't have an an awareness of this overall thing, you might avoid the stretching because it was an unpleasant experience and not associate it with the back pain that then would would follow from doing that. Is that making sense? So some things we do even though that the, the the capacity of sensing them is not pleasant. But the thing that we make it into can still provide some kind of satisfaction if that's making sense. So if you watch the whole process of this, you sense what we can know Uh, consciously is something that can be sensed through the capacities of sensing it, it has a quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in the sensing, both worldly and unworldly we then make it into something, we solidify or attach is the word, we make it into something, and how we make it into something is that we associate it to a database of experience that we've already had we recognize the pattern of each individual sense Thread and how they've come together in a complex pattern to represent the thing, and we know the thing because we've sensed it before. And we've sensed it before, and we, in addition to the just knowing what it is, we have also a record, if we're not super dissociative, of how we responded to the situation, and then we also have a record of what the outcome of our action was. And then we formulate how we're going to respond to it. That's the process of conditioned experience. Uh-huh.
2: Um, so when we're in selfless states, uh, it seems to me at least the further on the spectrum that you go, the less memory that you're creating in that state. And so does that impact uh, what you're talking about here?
1: You mean if you're just in a flow state?
2: Yeah, and it, it, it seems like there's not memory being created. Like I, I can't usually like exactly recall what was happening, but I can have a I can remember that I was there, but I don't right. necessarily know I, I couldn't recall what was happening. So when something's happening, I mean, I guess yeah, just just in terms of I guess the more that we're in that state, are we able to form less? Uh, attachment to I don't know a well,
1: sense of self almost would need to be there to interpret what was happening Right. and if there's no sense of self there right. what you would be remembering is simply the flow right. mm-hmm. but not fixated into those kinds of self oriented experiences that's what I would or at least that's how I experience it is that making sense?
2: yeah yeah and so eventually, we would want to just,
1: you uh, have an awareness of the fixation when the self re constructs. The- I think um, where we're trying to go is to manifest in the moment that we need a sense of self, brilliant, a brilliant, capable uh, sense of self that is that can act. And then when we don't need it, we simply let it go, and we just become flowing. And in the, if you become deeply flowing all the way into cessation, there's not even awareness. And then when you need to, so a deeply liberated person could come from cessation into brilliantly manifested self in the snap of your fingers. Um, that would be totally free. Another way to describe what that is. Um, Arise, the sense of self acts and then when the sense of self an action is no longer required dropping into the no-self or maybe even not needing to manifest the sense of self and just manifesting the action that's that's required that just that totally spontaneous manifestation of what the action is without processing it through the, the sense of self. You notice with people who are deeply liberated that they're incredibly spontaneous and they're not limited necessarily by the, the kind of self-consciousness that arises when you're in the experience of self um, um, can you I notice it I know in my own work as a meditation mentor that if I can get in a deep uh, no self state I can Engage in the conversation and in the activity of mentoring, and not really uh, understand at all what the person is saying to me. I'm just responding. And when I'm like that, that tends to be more effective as a as a meditation mentor than when I'm filtering everything through the sense of self and then trying to construct a response from there.
2: But if they stop you and ask you to go back to something, <laughs> <laughs> you can't. What were you saying? <laughs>
1: Does that make any sense? Uh, what does spontaneity feel like and what does the self-consciousness feels like might be another investigation. How often are you able to just operate from a place of total spontaneity and what would that require? With another person, it would require a solid sense of safety in the relationship with them. This is where then we're talking about secure attachment. They would need to be reliable, and you know that they would provide mutual care for you, and you felt a, a sense of safety in being in their care, and that would open up the possibility of attuning to them and allowing a free expression of self. The free, you'd be willing to reveal to them who you are without needing to filter it or spin it or construct it in a way that you think that they would be likely to accept it you could just be be that moment and then in that flowing sense of, uh, of being authentic uh, connect empathetically and emotionally regulate with them in a way that would be uh, beneficial to you and then What grows out of that is this sense of delight in them. If you know somebody well and they emotionally regulate you well, when you see them, you have a tendency to be delighted by seeing them because you know in a few minutes you're going to be very well emotionally regulated. It creates this this positive loop. And then if they they allow you to to go and explore and they're interested in the reunion when you come back to hear about your exploration then they actually become the great supporters of your your life and uh, they become part of the process in which you make meaning out of your life and so they become highly valuable to you. But when they restrict your ability to explore because they can't deal with the separation which happens often in insecure relationships, then you feel a deficit from not being free to explore what's meaningful to you, and then you may turn to them and demand that they make up to you the thing that you've given up to reassure them, and there simply isn't a real way that they can make up that so there's an anger that arises that you've had to give up your exploration to reassure them and that, and, and that they are not compensating you for that and so that, that process of the secure relationship really includes them in being very encouraging to you to go off and explore and find meaning in your life and then uh, this delight in the reunion when you come back and are willing to share it with them So, let's do some practice. <clears throat> I want to do, uh, again, this double noting. Uh, so it's a see her field technique, a basic see her field technique. Um, and then we'll add a second note. So the first note is for sec- sensory clarity. Um, noticing which strand of sensing experience is activated. We'll use the Shenzhen technique of see, hear, feel. So basically three categories. Is it a visual experience? Is it an auditory experience? Or is it a felt sense of the body? That includes taste and smell. Um, and then we'll add to that a second noting, which is around what is the quality of the sensing experience? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? So we're not going to um, divide between worldly and unworldly just whether the quality of the sensing is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then, excuse me, we'll begin with a few minutes of concentration practice. Would you rather do a breath counting or metta? What? Metta. Yeah, no, no. no, no.
0: George, quick question. Sure. I need to ask you when you when you give the example of going through this, you do it pretty fast. Okay. You know, see unpleasant, and then hit. I mean, you're you're going through and you're doing maybe a couple seconds. Oh. Do you feel like that's the pace that a uh, sort of intermediate meditator right. would would be at, or I mean, is there a uh, so an average on that? Not that I want to be too critical, but I'm just I I'm not rushing.
1: Tie the noting to the out breath. So every time I come to the outbreath, I make a note of where my attention is in that moment. Um, there's two schools of thought. One is the rhythmic noting strategy, and the other is the freely moving noting strategy. <coughs> they both have their upsides and downsides. The upside of the rhythmic noting strategy is that if you stop noting, you notice it faster. So you spend less time caught up in that way, unless you get into a robat- robotic kind of noting. The downside is that you don't soak in as much because part of your attention is maintaining the metronoma when you need to to, uh, note. Um, For me that works better because I can get spaced out for long periods of time and so the, the shorter amount of time spaced out I like better. There's no preference in this, it's really just which one works better for you. In the freely moving strategy, you simply let your attention be drawn to wherever it's drawn and each time your attention moves, you note where your attention goes. So if you get uh, into the body and you're staying with one particular sensing experience for a long period of time, you would not be noting um, in that way. You would be in the sensing experience of it. But you could get spaced out and because there's no secondary mechanism calling you back you could be spaced out for long periods of time uh, so you don't uh, with the rhythmic noting you don't tend to soak in as deeply but you don't tend to spend as much time spaced out so whichever one works better is fine that,
0: that's interesting with someone who's only had a daily practice for just over five months for me, it, it's quite the opposite. It, it's quick, right? Right. I kind of often, catch myself fixating on like a sound and a visualization at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, and I hope this is right. So that's why I'm checking with you. Is I'm trying to actually like slow it down and maybe not always pick all of the different levels. right.
1: You don't need to catch everything. <laughs> yeah. um, so a couple of things the inferential insight suggests that if you're uh, zooming in and you're just able to focus on one sensing experience at a time that if you're experiencing something the other aspects of that sensing experience have to be present so the inferential insight would be that they're present if you're experiencing that so you're hearing a bird uh, and it's just the sound you're focusing on um, then, and it's just the sound of the bird, then all of the other sounds that you're hearing, the traffic and everything else you're not hearing because you're narrowly zoomed in. If you zoom out, of course, then you have a wide spectrum that you have to pay attention to. Uh, The difference is the amount of detail. If you're zooming in, you can get a lot of detail, and if you're zooming out, you don't get a lot of detail. In the Vipassana, you want to... Vipassana v means to divide and Pāsana means to see clearly. So the point of the practice is to divide things up to see them clearly. And so the zooming in practice would be that uh, you would be, your attention would be so occupied by one aspect of the sensing that the, even though the other aspects are there, they're not really in, in the foreground of attention. And then you systematically move through or simply allow yourself to be drawn through the various aspects of the sensing experience and then you can zoom out and assemble the whole experience having explored the individual threads and then know, really know that experience. Is that making sense? And then what insights are important to focus on? Um, So then we would be talking about arising and passing or we would be talking about no-self or we would be talking about investigating the unsatisfactoriness of things as the main conduit to uh, liberation. But many people uh, spend uh, some time looking at psychological insights or other kinds of insights that might arise. Planning, for instance, about what to do when you leave here. You might get an insight around that. Um...
2: What about like uh, insights into your conditioning, into the into the
1: what you're making it into? Right, that too. Is that worthy of investigation
2: during
1: this? Or? Um, I might. It depends on um, whether they're purely psychological in, the, in 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 what's coming up, or they're lending themselves to this and uh, noticing that there's no self, which is an early insight. That everything is impermanent, which is sort of a middle insight.
2: Like a reminder of that. If there's like fear, and then it's like you're like this is a conditioned response. Right. You're
1: okay. Right. So then we're we're separating the conditioning from the experience of the present moment. That all making sense. We're going to do some uh, meta practice and then some insight practice. So how did that go? You're all still awake? <laughs>
0: how long was it said?
1: 35. How long did it feel?
0: I was guessing 40. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Started out with 40, but then...
2: Um it down. We
1: kept talking. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I uh, the song came on.
1: <laughs> I'm thinking it must be like get rid of these people from the yoga class or something, right? <laughs> uh, and then I like my
2: definitely my natural reaction was to laugh. Uh, <laughs> And I have a kind of a history of laughing at inappropriate times. (laughs) Um, But I kind of managed to try to actually just like let myself, like not try to stop myself actually, and just soak into that Mm. experience. And it was quite, um, it was it was quite expansive actually. Oh, good really interesting. There's lots of vibrations in the body and, uh, and it resonated and interesting and not so... I think the, the part about trying to not laugh is trying to not laugh. <laughs> uh, I don't know.
1: That was interesting. <laughs> Just allowing the joy... Equanimity with joy or humor, of course, doesn't need an outward expression. You just have the right. internal feeling.
2: Right, and not needing to feel some shame surrounding me, Like, oh God, oh God, I you're here <laughs> and laugh. coming.
1: I used to manage a nightclub in New York, which was an after-hours club, which meant that um, we closed at like 6 a.m., and I would go down to the DJs, and they would be like barely hanging on. Right? Three more lines didn't keep them awake, and uh, I would say, "Get these people out of here!" And then they would just put on these songs, and the people would scatter. <laughs> they could empty the club in three minutes, with one record. <laughs>
0: see the, the audio vibration, it's kind of like a wave, mm-hmm. how it scatters kind of like your own feelings of um, being happy, right, or, or peace, and then it will just kind of flow back, it's kind of like this, like a literal ebb and flow visually in audio, and then you'll see it kind of like, you'll feel kind of a kid again. And then there's a sense of a maturing from that point, like allowing yourself to mature and this stability, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Where it's just there's no real need for that anymore. The um, it's like it's understood at that point. There's no need to have conjure up like laughter, or mm-hmm. it's just there, you know. And then it just kind of settles, in that which is really interesting so you'll see if someone is upset in their practice and you hear it you can hear the distress the and then you can just see them kind of flow back mm-hmm. so it's funny because it's pushing and pulling off people around the room you know so because of that impermanence in it all mm-hmm. like you'll see it like right? someone's disappointed in their practice
1: and then you'll see it just float back like, okay, well, that's over with the sigh is complete you know Uh uh-huh cool so when you sit in a group of course you have the empathetic experience of the whole room as part of the practice whether you're noticing it or not right? it going well? Do you notice how if, if it's going well for a lot of people it tends to be very uh, supportive of the practice and then if it's not going well for a bunch of people it tends to scatter the whole room I notice that There's also a kind of co-regulation that comes from sitting in a group, uh, an emotional co-regulation, so that it's easier to hold some of the experiences that come up when you're sitting in in a group, whereas if you're sitting on your own, sometimes it's harder to regulate the experiences, and so it, it becomes harder to sit through them. All of that, that whole dynamic is happening as you're doing We can go back in time and kill Michael Skype so he doesn't record this record. <laughs> <laughs> So this is deepening your practice. I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice, and there's a few things to consider. Um, one is we're having uh, the winter retreat in uh, December. Uh, I think that re- you should really consider making retreat uh, a retreat practice part of your practice if you want to go deep. Um, uh, so at least one residential retreat a year would be a good idea. Two would probably be better. Um The retreat is up at the Seven Circles um, uh, space in the Sierra Nevada, so it's a beautiful wilderness spot. Um, And uh, so you can come for four days or six days or for for four nights, six nights or ten nights. Um, It's a metta vipassana retreat so the first days are all metta and then the, the second part of the retreat is all vipassana. I find that In doing four days of metta at the beginning of the retreat, you really get into a place of kindness with yourself, which really supports you going deep into the Vipassana side of practice. So consider that. There are flyers out for that. Uh, Developing a daily practice is a good idea for uh, deepening your practice if you don't have one um, and you need support in that. We have morning meditation, which is a live conference call every morning at 7.30, Monday through Saturday. There's a coupon out there that would give you a free month of it so you could try it out. It's also recorded so you can get it any time of the day uh, if you wanna. If sitting at 7.30 in the morning isn't um, something that you, you want. Um, also, one-on-one mentoring with a meditation teacher is a good idea. I have some spots open in my schedule if that's something you would consider. I have a flyer out there for that as well. Uh, really uh, what we should do, if that's something you're considering, is um, schedule a phone call and we can talk through what, what your, your your goals for practice would be and then see if it's a good match. I do think that you should be in a regular dialogue with the teacher uh, and sometimes the one-on-one is, is essential for your practice to develop. <coughs> In March, we're going to have two intensives coming. The Level 1 Meaningful Life Intensive is a six-month class which is focused on developing meditation strategies for addressing attachment disturbance. So we'll explore the nature of attachment and begin to uh, uh, develop the skill at meditation. Uh, Level 1 is for people who have not already done some of the uh, Meaningful Life trainings you've already done one, we're also going to start a level 2 training. The main difference between the level 1 and the level 2 training is that there's men, um, you have a, a, a regular scheduled set, uh, session with a meditation mentor. Um, they're going to do um, it's called um, uh, uh, and, geez, a PAI uh, it's a, a, a personal attachment assessment so that uh, we, we can begin to uh, navigate what your actual attachment strategy is. And then also uh, the, um, each of the trainings uh, in the second level will have uh, the idealized person, idealized parent figure protocol on the group level. Idealized parent figure protocol is a way of repairing attachment disturbances by developing a reference for an ideal parent relationship. Um, And the group level is a a general uh, um, exploration of what an ideal parent relationship might be, but then also moving through the stages of secure relationship. You've heard me talk about them before, but... What would, it be, what would an, uh, a felt sense of safety be with ideal parents? What would be a felt sense of attunement? Uh, if you have an attachment disturbance, then it's likely that you had the experience of a lot of misattunement from your caregivers. And so we, we begin to build a, a database of uh, uh, being well attuned to so that you feel safe to reveal your authentic self. What would it be like to have been in a relationship with a caregiver where they were very good at emotionally regulating you? So that you. uh, What would it have been like to have been in a relationship with a caregiver that, where they were uh, delighted uh, by just you being there, just the experience of you, and what would it have been like to have had uh, ideal parents? supporting you in your exploration. So that's part of the Level 2 training. We're also going to do a, um, uh, if we have enough people, a, a meditation intervention for the addiction process training. Um, um, one of the things about the recovery community is is uh, getting uh, people to show up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as soon as we get a, a group big enough to do that with, we'll do one, and, and we're we're getting close. So we may also begin one of those in, in March. If you um, are curious about it, we're, uh, there's some information about it on the website metagroup.org, and we'll send out an announcement. The registration for those classes are going to is opening on October 15th. And they're, you know, twenty people classes, so they tend to tend to fill up. Um, the, the this evening is called deepening your practice, and it's offered on a Donna basis. The suggested dhana here is twenty dollars. Um, Donna is uh, the Pali word for generosity, so it's a practice of your own generosity, which is really opening the heart to the whole path of meditation. Um, For some people, $20 uh, uh, doesn't feel generous, and so we really are trying to organize this uh, or suggest that you practice in a way that does feel generous. So um, if more feels generous, do that. If $20 feels generous, do that. If it's too much with the resources the way that they are, Do consider giving something each time you come so that you're engaged in the practice of generosity. But also understand that uh, we as a community will support you coming to this space even if you're not resourced. So don't feel an obligation if you don't have resources. Um, There's a bowl out there for cash. There's some bracelets out there as well if you want a transitionary object to remind you to practice. And I can also take a credit card. Thank you for coming.
0: We'll see you in three weeks.